Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 867.NU1105, certificate number 25671, the Onion Futures Act. Now. South on in April of 142! That's not right. How can the price be going down? Something's wrong. Where's Wilson? What are they doing here? They're selling, Mortimer. Well, that's ridiculous. You're a, a person I think of as fairly financially savvy. You manage a portfolio, don't you? I guess. I have all the game show money you, somewhere. You made money and you tucked it away in various places? It's tucked. It's not in a mattress. Right. It's in imaginary places that you, would all be vaporized if, if uh, like the EMP pulse hits. Right. I mean, well, no, you bought a house, so you own some real estate. That's true. But then the rest of it is spread around some sort of stock funds, I'm guessing. Yes, and I, and I, and I say things like securities, securities. and commodities, right. like I know what they are. But I, I really kind of don't. Do you know what a commodity is? A commodity is different than a security. Yes. Because it's a thing. It's like some kind of crop or product, right? A crop it's not a or- share in a, in, a, in a corporation or enterprise. No, a, a com- what defines a commodity is that it is a product, right? Like, like you were saying, a crop or a, um, or a mineral, but something where it is, um, it's fungible, which is to say that it, uh, it's produced multiple places around the world, and all those different versions of it are, as far as the market or a consumer is concerned, is the same. So if I buy tin, right. I'm not buying Amalgamated Tin Company of New Hampshire. I'm you don't just, care if it came from South Africa or Russia. All tin is tin if I own tin. All tin is tin. All wheat is wheat. I like that. It's like Catan or, or Pit or something. Yeah. it's Well, those games are based on, on commodities. Oh, trading. it's not the other way around? Commodities <laughs> trading is not based not on based settlers on, of Catan. Based on settlers of Catan. <laughs> uh, and so commodities are... Um, Commodities are different, for instance, from, say, um, like VCRs, because even though VCRs still exist, VCRs still exist, and they're still a major uh, force in the stock market. But a Sony VCR and a Philips VCR have elements, including their brand, including uh, different um, different perceptions in consumers about about value and maybe proprietary variation or technology so that a Sony VCR although it does the same thing as a Philips VCR unless it's a beta unless it's a beta a Sony VCR could inexplicably be it could cost $150 more so although you could base you you could i mean there's an element of VCRs that that perform as commodities because they are mass produced and they are more or less interchangeable but the element adding the additional element of brand um, and this is this is also true for instance of eggs right eggs are kind of produced universally you not could, by me well 
No. By, by chickens. No. Well, not just and chickens. And anything with an ovary. You're, yeah, that's right. Your wife is producing eggs. How do you even know as that? we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that nice compliment. Oh, no, no, Can, no. Your wife's not in menopause yet. That's not true. She produced all her eggs. They were already produced in her when she was born. They, she came out of the box like that. Yeah. All, if you're, if you're a futurelings, if, if you are a species that has ovaries, right. what that means is any offspring you ever have is out there right now right. in your future partner's ovary. Unless... Futurelings have evolved an ovary that produces eggs on demand. Maybe futurelings are able to say, I want an egg with uh, a, a long, uh, that produces an offspring with a long proboscis. It would certainly be convenient, but the bottom would fall out of the feminine hygiene industry. Mm. I mean, if you're thinking about commodities markets, just think how that in- invention would hurt, uh, you know, always or Tampax. If you, if you can just produce one egg when you want to ovulate and nothing else otherwise. Unless futurelings are sentient tampons. <laughs> I feel like a lot of our fans are sentient tampons. <laughs> but so that is what, uh, that is kind of how, how a commodity is described. And a lot of things are sort of imperfect commodities, like an egg, for instance. Like most consumers just want an egg. If you go into a restaurant and you order eggs, you don't care whether those eggs came from... South Africa or Russia. Right. But there are eggs that are cage-free, range-free, and as a consumer, you're willing to pay more for a kind of egg. So even though eggs function as commodities, they're, they're imperfect. There are other there are eggs that, that have qualities that, that change their value. Is there a name for that? I, I think within a, within an overarching conception of commodities, there's a recognition that nothing... I mean, there are commodities that are purer commodities than others. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's an imperfect description. So let's say I go to a sports card show where some weirdos are, have card tables and they're selling sports cards. Now, at the end of the weekend, they'll sell them by the box and those become pure commodities. They're not good ones, but it's like, here's a box of baseball cards. Effectively, not, they're all the same. You're not going to find a Ken uh, Griffey Jr. Right. first-year card. But are, the, but are the nice cards that they have on the tables face up at the beginning of the weekend, would those count as a commodity? Or no, those, those are, okay. those are you know, a... Um, they're actually just items. They're items. You Because right. you couldn't invest in that. I mean, you, you could invest in each particular one. You invest in a card, it. but not in the mass of cards. Right. They don't become a commodity until they come out of the par- cardboard box in volume at the end of the weekend. Yeah, that's right. I like to understand all economic... Things in terms of in baseball terms cards. of sports card sales at a local middle school. <laughs> that's what I'm into. Well, and what's interesting about commodities, um, like for instance, gold. I mean, gold is a commodity to the degree that you can throw gold from all around the world into the same little smelting pot and smelt it down, and it's still gold. Gold's gold. Gold is gold. Chemically, it's the same thing. Uh, what's additionally interesting about commodities is that the price of them is variable or fluctuates according to supply and demand, but not to any specific producer of it. So, for instance, a gold market or a wheat market becomes a global market. The price of it, the price of that commodity is determined by, I mean, obviously it's hard to transport that Australian is, wheat right. to America, but that's, that, that's part of a commodities exchange. For most commodities, it is... Um, the, the price of them is, is determined across the entire... Commodity. Geography doesn't come into play. You don't, you, it doesn't matter that even if Australia has too much weed, it would be too expensive to get it to the American market so we can count it out. Is that an is that, is that a, a, a innovation of the flatter world of the 20th century? Yeah, it changes. It has changed very much in the, in the 20th century. For, I mean, for instance, there is a global price of gold. But gold's um, an easy example because there's just not that much... Gold, right? All the gold ever mined on Earth would fit in a cube 20 feet wide or something. Have you heard this thing? Yeah. Like, there's just not that much gold out there. It's great, right? Is That's, that great to you? I think it is great because every time you get a piece of gold... You're like, you, where does this go in the cube? Yeah, you're like, this is part of the cube. Maybe they can't this, make the cube without me now. Maybe this goes on an edge. Uh-huh. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh. Like a puzzle piece. Right, the, the cube just sits with a little corner missing and that's the piece of gold I have here in my mother's wedding ring. And then Scrooge McDuck dives around in it. But because commodities... Uh, because the prices fluctuate, and some of it is to do with um, the fact that uh, wheat in Australia may be flourishing today and wheat in America was all hit with a plague of some kind. I mean, the 
commodities, uh, in a way, in recent years, we've extended commodities even to include energy. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But like, you know, you can buy and sell electricity now. And electricity is an interesting commodity because although you would think all electricity was more or less the same, you can, in fact, uh, stipulate that the electricity you are buying on an electricity market was produced by solar or wind. And so people are willing to pay more for uh, for renewable electricity. Just out of social conscience. Yeah, that's right. So it becomes, I mean, like the the sort of social aspect of, of um, consumerism is now kind of changing the way commodities market. But that's, that's not true of tin yet? There's no cage-free tin? It's probably true of diamonds where people will pay more for non-West non African blood diamonds, right? Sure they will, yeah. What about uh, pork bellies? Why is it always bellies? Well, that's what I want to know. So everything should have bell. All commodities should end with belly. So we'll and then gold bellies. I'm in oil bellies. We'll get to we'll get to bellies in a second. Okay, that's um, what they always say, and then they never do. No, you, no, no. You better get back to it. For sure, we're going to talk about bellies today. Okay. So commodities trading, uh, trading, uh, it kind of has two aspects to it. A commodity like wheat has what's called a you know a, a price today right? If you want a bushel of wheat, you're willing to pay today's price. If I'm really hungry, maybe I'll pay too much. Well, but there is a, there is a set price for wheat today, tomorrow. You know, it's, it, wheat is $10 a bushel right now, let's say. Okay. And so if you go to someone and say, I would like to buy this quantity of wheat, there is a, there's a price you're willing to pay in today's market, which is called the spot price. So if wheat is $10 a bushel, you go to a, somebody that has wheat to sell and you say, I'll pay you $10 for this, and you pay this spot price for it. Which has kind of been decided by the market through a series of other transactions. That's right. And within a day fluctuates. or two, they have to produce this wheat for you at that price. But what if I'm hungry now? Well, at, you would go to the store if you're hungry. You're, we're talking about trading commodities as a way of... of um, moving these goods around. I don't ever for, want the wheat at my house. I no, just want their ownership rights to a certain amount of all the wheat in the world. Presumably at this, in this example, you're just buying the wheat in order to make bread or something. You have some okay. industrial use for it. Okay. Uh, so that's the spot price, which is, which is uh, the sort of immediate price. But because commodity availability and, um, and need fluctuate, Supply and demand. That's right. There is also something called the the futures market or the price of a commodity at some point in the future. And this is also called the derivatives market, which is to say um, right now if you're a farmer and you have planted a field of wheat, uh, that wheat isn't going to mature. You're not going to be able to sell that until the wheat is harvested. Right. And so you're looking ahead and you're trying to you're trying to gauge your year. You're trying to say like, oh, I have to pay for my children's college. I have to buy a new combine. And a lot of things could happen to your field of wheat between now and when it's harvested and ready to sell. You could be hit with a, a storm and your wheat crop could be destroyed. But also your neighbors could all be producing fantastic crop of wheat and suddenly there the market is at harvest time full of incredible wheat and naturally that draw that that will drop the overall price of wheat it could go the other way right like the, something awful could happen to all the wheat in china and prices could go up and your wheat could be worth a ton of money uh -huh. that's right and so as a farmer at the beginning of the year you're thinking the last thing i want is to is to have my wheat destroyed or the market crash and I lose the value of this wheat mm -hmm. because the spot price of this wheat right now, uh, I could, if it remained the same, I could make a predictable decision about my financial well-being a year from now. Is, and so the futures market exists to eliminate uncertainty for a person like this who would rather have or is it for someone else? No, no, no. It's it's precisely to reduce uncertainty. Um, and, and, of course, the buyer of wheat also wants some predictability in their own life. If you're somebody who's making bread and you're looking at the price of wheat as a component of how you're going to produce your own crop, your own uh, product in the form of bread, 
you look at the spot price now, and obviously you're hoping that it will go down by the time wheat is for sale in the fall, but also you're, you, you definitely don't want the price of wheat to skyrocket because it affects your own financial fortunes. So what a futures market does in a kind of ideal situation is that both parties agree to settle on a price that they're willing to pay for wheat at harvest time, even though we're, we're way up in the year. And if you can settle on that price, it reduces your risk. It reduces risk for both, for both parties. parties. Somebody's going to probably going to lose a little on one side or another, and somebody's going to gain a lot on one side or another. Right. If wheat goes up a little or down a little, which is typical in a normal market, um, neither party really wins or loses except by fractions. They're both protected against an incredi- incredibly volatile market. Now, if the price of wheat skyrockets, the farmer might r- regret having sold all of his wheat at a spot price mm-hmm. from nine months ago. B- and the buyer will rejoice because he, b- in purchasing futures, he's given himself a competitive advantage against all the other people that are making bread. This is not unlike an eBay transaction where someone sells a Filson leather bag at a price that is a little too low and then realizes after the fact that they sold this to, say, Seattle musician John Roderick at a price that's too low and And then then tries to weasel out of the sale a little. Then they send me some emails that are like, wow, you got a really good deal on this bag that I just sold you that I didn't realize was worth this much money. You're buying Filson futures. That's right. You did get the bag, though, and it looks great. Thank you very much. I'm glad you appreciate it. Not everyone would. It's a lovely garment bag. Uh, so, but of course, like anything that's traded, the future market can also become a space for speculators. Someone who has no actual interest in wheat beyond just uh, as a commodity. And the occasional bagel. As a way, well, no, I mean, they have an interest in the wheat that you make into bread, but they themselves are just using it as a financial instrument. This is what, so I first learned about derivatives trading in regards to the housing bubble of 2008 or so popping, in which case it turned out that the secondary market being created was just a bad, dumb thing that was adding no value and in fact tanked the world economy. That's right. So am I supposed to hate all derivatives markets for that reason? Well, no. I mean, derivatives markets, um, so uh, economists argue this uh, and still argue it today, whether or not... um, Derivatives markets actually have the effect long-term of stabilizing prices or whether they have no effect or whether they actually have a negative effect in terms of stabilizing prices. Like economists like stable prices. They don't like crazy fluctuation. and they're boring people or they wouldn't have become economists. That's right. And that's the ideal situation. The ideal conditions are ones where... Predictability. Prices fluctuate, you know, according to a small sort of... But there's there's not a... um, there aren't these situations where you have a housing crisis where all the bad mortgages have been repackaged into financial instruments which are being traded. So the problem with that was not times. that derivatives existed. It was that kind of sketchy derivatives were being created and missold mis, uh, to people, like uh, deceptively sold to people. Right. But those are recent inventions. Um, the idea of futures trading goes all the way back to ancient times. The, uh, the Code of Hammurabi... Uh, actually has ingots are they bad ingots there there are no bad ingots but there there is a uh, there is a clause within the the code that deals with the idea of of you know selling a uh, a thing that will only come to fruition in the future at a price at a current price it seems like a natural reaction to dealing with crops which is one of the most common interactions the tra- transactions you would have back then is you may want to sell the crop before harvest that's right When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can 
can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And, and, and an example of um, an, early, an early example of kind of a... Uh, futures or a sort of or what's called a sort of hedging in a, in a market. Uh, it appears in Aristotle. He tells the story of Thales, who was a he was a poor philosopher, but in using science, he he saw in the stars and in the weather of the spring that there was going to be a, a extremely productive olive harvest at the end of the season. He's the guy that thought everything was made of water. By the way, that's the only thing I know about him. He, He's thought, the, he thought the universe was made of water. So why is he buying olives if he thinks they're made of water? Well, he didn't buy olives. What he did was go around to all the owners of olive presses ah. and contract with them that he would have the exclusive use of their press come harvest season. And so all the olive press owners were happy to lease their presses to him at what they consider to be a good price. And then when olive season he's arrived... Insi- he's insider trading. He knows there's going to be a, a, a bumper crop of olives. Well, he's, he's, he's not insider trading because no one in the olive business gave him that information. He's just observing oh, he the conditions. He didn't go chill in the orchards? Okay. Well, but even if he did, he's not... Insider trading is a, is a situation where someone within a business says, we're about to sell... Nobody knows this, we're going to have so many olives. Yeah, or, or we just made a contract with a company that's going to double our business... And you know it the day before we announce it. Gotcha. This is just a situation where Thales is using his brain and using what he knows about, about weather and harvest. And so when suddenly all the olive producers needed to press their olives to make olive oil, They Thales, have no choice but to reckon with Thales. Right. And he then was renting out his, what, what effectively were his least presses uh, at, a, at a much greater rate. And so profited quite a bit and became could he, a wealthy Did he set exorbitant prices? Did, I he think, ga- did he gouge these poor olive farmers? I don't, I don't admire him in this story. First I of all, he thinks think, the universe is made of water. Well, Second of all, he's victimizing these poor uh, olive farmers. I think he probably uh, behaved honorably because Aristotle praises him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in just that, I mean, you can raise the price of something uh, to account for fluctuations in the market to a point where you're where it's not usurious and and past a certain point then it becomes then a moral component enters into it at least to liberals like us who sit and think that capitalism shouldn't be pure and but, untrammeled but it should it should also take into account social factors you don't want to alienate the entire olive growing community in Greece you want to keep them you want to keep everybody happy. And also if you're gouging olive growers, you're also, I mean, the, 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 the owners of the olive presses are also going to resent you because they rented it to you at 10, uh, shekels. Uh, but, are, but we're really just relying on his conscience here. Nothing, no market forces are requiring him not to just set the highest price he thinks the farmers can pay without, um, just trashing their crop. Right. Although you have to ask yourself, does your reputation as a trader have a long-term consequence, or are you just in it to short-term it? I guess that's true. And this is part of the, the mortgage trade thing, and this is part of you know, uh, what we see in financial markets now, where um, corporate raiders will buy a company, shut it down, and sell all its assets, assets for a short-term profit, but leave sort of community devastation in their wake, and they're the Michael Milkins of the world who are reviled. It's happening uh, to a lot of retail in our era future links, like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, businesses that could otherwise stay in business, it turns out to one person, some hedge fund manager, it's more profitable just to shut down Toys R Us or Sears or whatever, even if they could make a go of it. Right. So places that otherwise would not, you know, could be a a going concern are on the chopping block due to these markets. And you look at situations like Sears, where as a retail concern, they're not extremely profitable, but then someone realizes that Sears is one of the major property owners in America. It's a lot they, of real estate. They own incredible real estate, sometimes right in the heart of downtowns. And if you buy Sears as a failing commercial enterprise, you get this real estate at a bargain. 
Um, but so the idea of of this kind of futures market um, existed for you know since ancient times. Futures have existed since the past, uh, and and c- will presumably continue into the future unless. Thank uh, the early 20th century American political scene eliminates all capitalism and we become a, a, a world... A, a utopian world. Of, where from each according to his ability, to each according... It's going to be sad for all those finance guys. They seem so nice. Finance, you know, the one thing I know about young finance guys, they're all super cool. Well, what about when you go down to Main Street and you meet with your local banker who knows you by name and, and I, extends you a loan? He gives you a toaster for opening an account. Extends you a loan to buy a new combine. Love it. Um, in the United States, uh, futures trading, and, and, and throughout most of history, futures trading was connected to commodities, real, real commodities. Like, I mean, and even the use of, a, of an olive press is within the, you know, it's, it's in the concrete world, and it isn't, uh, it isn't necessarily that any one olive press is making a better olive oil than any other. Right. Um, Chicago, because it was the location, it was central to the agricultural world of, a, of 19th century America. Chicago became the... The, the hog butcher to the world? City of big shoulders? That's right. About both things and more. Uh, but also the center of commodities training, uh, trading in the United States and in the world. And originally, the commodities exchange in Chicago was called the uh, Chicago Butter and Egg Board. Those were the, those were the main things. I mean, butter and eggs, man. And this was before uh, free-range eggs, back when eggs were just a, just a commodity. Sounds more like a chocolate chip cookie recipe than a financial institution. The Chicago Butter and Egg Board, it actually sounds like one of these restaurants where you can only get pickled pickles and, uh, it, and a little bit of fish. All the drinks come in mason <laughs> jars. Uh, the Chicago Butter and Egg Board uh, morphed into the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and they were trading in sort of, I guess, what you would what you would consider uh, your your regular commodities like uh, cattle and hogs, pork and bellies, milk. We're, we're finally getting to pork bellies, like well, you promised. We're we're not quite to pork bellies. Uh, fine. So fa- fast forward to um, the aftermath of World War II. Um, the country is booming and uh, commodities are in demand all around. Uh, the financial institutions, the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange, everybody's flourishing. It's, it's, it now sounds like a bubblegum band to me. I love the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Yeah, right. Well, from the they're, 60s, they're for, right? Yeah, exactly. Quick server, they're, they're, messenger their service. first record was amazing. But in the mid-50s, um, a couple of onion farmers by the name of Sam Siegel and Vincent Kasuga. Okay. Um, realized, I mean, they were kind of onion farmers and also dabbling as onion traders. Uh, they started to try to game the system a little bit. Game the onion system. Game the onion system. And onions were a commodity that were, that were traded like a lot of produce. Mm-hmm. But onions had become a major, uh, a major commodity on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Because they're so delicious. They're very delicious. They are... Somewhat perishable. Everybody wants an onion, as we as we so often say. Uh, <laughs> that old saying. Yeah, well, no, the style Everybody of the time was to put one on your belt, so you needed a fresh onion. That's why this was such a big deal at the time. People were wearing onions around. Wait, how they, perishable are onions, by the way? Like, can, will onions stay through the winter in a root cellar like potatoes? Well, have you ever put an onion, like a, a, a raw onion on the countertop and left it there for a couple of weeks? Yeah, it gets gross. It, it gets, gets all gross. wrinkly and And, and oozy. starts to ooze, right. Yeah. Um, so Sam and Vincent decided that they were going to corner the market on onions. Now, what cornering the market is, is if you buy enough of a commodity that you have control over, you have, you know, you have control over enough of it that you can sort of set the price. You can determine the price because... Like Thales with his olive press. Like Th- Thales with his olive press. He cornered the market on presses. And so Sam and Vincent were had a plan to corner the market. I looked up the etymology to see if it was some cool thing about how there was one corner of the Chicago Stock Exchange or whatever. But we, no, it just means like you're you're backing the other buyers into a corner. Right. You're you're you're, you're cornering them. They have no choice but to accept your price. And plenty of people have tried to corner markets over the years. And, it, and I have not. 
You've never tried to corner the market? Here are some markets. Uh, I've, I've coined, cornered zero markets. No, that's not true. You cornered the market on people that were winning Jeopardy for a while. <laughs> it's a very small market, and it's not publicly traded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead. What were you about to say? Oh, no, uh, nothing. I, you just said many people have tried to corner the market. I thought you had interesting examples. Well, I do. Many financial people have tried to corner the market. And in the 19th century in America, which was this boom time, there were a lot of it was somewhat fashionable for the robber baron class to try to corner the market on something because it, you can see that it has a certain appeal, right? I'm the one that owns all the the pork bellies, as you say. All the cobalt. Or, you know, you can't get cobalt unless you come to me. It seems unfair, though. Like, it seems like, like in your olive press example, you would just piss everybody off and maybe uh, Teddy Roosevelt would pass legislation saying stop cornering that market, you. Well, quite uh, there was quite a bit of that. Um, uh, one of the more famous instances, um, immediately after the Civil War, during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the government of the United States was considerably in debt because they'd spent a lot of money uh, fighting the war that they kind of, you know, they, they were spending money they didn't have. Yeah. But what they did have was gold reserves. And so on a semi-regular basis, President Grant would sell off some of um, of the, the Treasury's gold in order to pay off America's debts. And during this period, um, two robber barons you may have heard of, Jay Gould, uh, a railroad magnate, right. and James Fisk, both, um, both sort of famous and famous somewhat famously reviled railroad barons of the mid-19th century. Not like the cool rich not, people. Not the cool ones. Not like the Carnegies and the, the J.P. Morgans who decided to give some of their money yeah, away. Yeah, that's what happens. Like they, I'm sure they all did awful things, but yeah. Gould and Fisk were not smart enough to put their names on any operators or museums. Well, and it seems like Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and their, and Rockefeller, they learned from the experience of, of Gould and Fisk because they came a, a, a generation later. We get in trouble, by the way, for saying Carnegie. Do you remember this? Oh, Carnegie. Because you're supposed to say Carnegie. Yeah. Well, but, I, I don't say Barcelona either. But it, is it like, so you, are you supposed to say Andrew Carnegie, but Carnegie Hall? Because no, no one's going to start saying Carnegie Hall or Carnegie Deli. I don't know. We've, we've talked about this before, right? The, the uh, Moog synthesizer, his name is Bob Moog, even though it's spelled M-O-O-G. A lot of people and, give up. Like yeah. Dr. Seuss was Dr. Seuss. Seuss. And he, people just wouldn't he's say like, Seuss. So he's like, Dr. whatever. Seuss, whatever. Fine, you know, morons. Just buy the books, you little bastards. I feel like Pearl Jam just wanted to be, just wanted to be a band that appealed to cool kids. And, and then eventually they realized, uh, we just, it's just like Springsteen. You just appeal to everybody now. Can't stop it. I've said the Springsteen was cheesy, but I, I don't mean in a bad way, by the way. No, no, no. Good, the good kind of cheesy. Like what? Billy Joel. Exactly. Um, when now I'm, I'm going to get in worse trouble. When I'm with musicians, uh, I will say Moog. Oh, I have a, I'm getting a, you know, getting some cool Moog sounds on this record. But if I'm with lay people, I'll say Moog because it's only a 50% chance they'll know what I'm talking about if I say Moog. If I say Moog. Zero percent. Zero. Nobody knows. Unless what. it's me. Yeah, but you're hip. I have a, like, I, I, know a, I know a guy who runs a board game company whose name is also Moog, M-O-O-G, but he pronounces it Moog. Sure, he Like, does. He's, he's either given up or his branch of the family always did it wrong. Yeah, or. I feel like it. I feel like, well, you know, Jennings, when you guys came to Ellis Island, it was actually Genschwein. Gen what if Ellis Island just changed <laughs> pronunciations only? Like, your name is Jennings. still spelled Jennings. Well, the British say Jenningings. Jenningings? Um, but Jay Gould and James Fisk saw this a regularity in the gold market, which is that the United, the, the U.S. government was releasing gold on a semi-regular, although you know not completely predictable basis, and that it, that that there was a gold market, and they decided they were going to try and corner the gold market, and part of the way they did this was by insider trading, by some bad, by some unscrupulous behavior. Mm. They started to buy up gold. And um, one of them knew Grant's daughter. Maybe she was the daughter-in-law of James Fisk. Scandal. And so uh, they insisted or they asked her, they pressured her to introduce them. You know, they were these captains of industry and they met Grant and not became friends, but, you know, they became um, acquaintances. Gould and Fisk 
knew a guy named Abel Corbin who was kind of a just a like a wheeler dealer, not a not a big hotshot. And Corbin's daughter or sister? No, Corbin married President Grant's sister. And so so these two uh Gould and Fisk they pressured Corbin who stood to benefit financially from their patronage to get his wife to introduce them to Grant. And after they took advantage of this kind of um association, they got they got close enough to Grant that they could they they were trying to get like insider info on when Grant was going to be doing a, a sale of, you know, when the government was going to sell gold. Treasury gold. Um and then they sent a they sent a letter to the White House saying that gold sales at this time would adversely affect the economy to the detriment of American farmers. And it was completely made up. They just mean to the detriment of us. Uh, but what they, what they were trying to do was stop the government sale, the imminent sale of gold, or the, I'm sorry, the imminent, imminent sale of gold. That's what I said. It might be imminent as well if the U.S. government is doing it. But in this case, the imminent sale of gold. And, and so the Grant White House took that letter at face value because these guys were prominent stock market types. And I'm always and, believe the rich lobbyists. That's right. That's what I've learned. And so they held off, uh, they held off with their gold sale while Gould and Fisk tried to corner the market. They bought as much gold as they could. And they, um, they sort of made the world aware that they were now the, um, the gold barons, but Grant caught wind of it. There was, there was a scandal and Grant, uh, ordered the treasury to release a bunch of gold onto the market. The price of gold crashed. So then the price of gold crashed. And then the price of gold and Fisk crashed. And uh, both guys were in financial straits, but then also were, were investigated, prosecuted, although let off with a slap on the wrist because, of course, they were... I'm not saying he's a ghoul digger, but I love this. Mm, I love this story because I like knowing. It. I like knowing who the Ivana Trump of the uh, 1870s is. It's uh, <laughs> it's Ulysses Grant's like ugly sister <laughs> trying to get in there. Who knows? Who knows whether she was ugly or not? I didn't. I didn't search for her relative beauty in the course of this story. I mean, to me, that wouldn't affect her value to me at all. No, no, no. Of course not. Of course not. It's really her access to President Grant. That's all I care about. Yes. I'm I'm the Jared Kushner of the 1870s. But most of the attempts to corner markets in the 19th century and really throughout the, throughout history have failed because it's... Why? Because if the fact that you're trying to corner the market gets out, people can somewhat defend against it. You know, you can... It, it it creates hoarding, but ultimately what happens is you inflate the price, you inflate the price, and then naturally the price crashes. If in, as part of cornering the market, you don't um, navigate the way you're selling your own stock, right? If you if you try to profit from every the time fact, you profit, you're selling. Which, that's right, you're selling, which, which lowers your cornering abilities. Exactly. So. If you own ninety percent of the world's gold and it and it's and it's inflated four hundred percent, well, you can't sell it. You know, you your your wealth depends entirely on you keeping gold. Away. That's why you've got to irradiate the gold, like uh, Goldfinger does in Fort Knox. That's genius. That was pretty smart of Goldfinger. He's a smart guy. I mean, he's always painting people with gold, which maybe is not smart because, like, he, he needed that gold. You can't corner the market if you keep painting ladies with gold. No, I mean, what that does is create scarcity. Also, it's to put gold leaf on something, it's not that not much. Not that gold. much. No. Also, who knows if they actually buried it on her? Maybe they scraped it off first. Well, all you'd have to do is burn her. The gold does not burn, it would melt. What if she doesn't want to be cremated? She's dead. <laughs> she has no, she yeah. no rights in this Once story. Once you are dead, uh, especially if you, if what your if body she left, is. What is if it, she left a do not cremate notice on her living will? If your body is in the hands of a Bond villain, <laughs> you're, you're, you don't have a lot of rights. Anyway, back to Kasuga and Siegel. Did they paint any women with onions? With, uh, oof, with, with onion I don't think that. I don't think the. I think the historical record is silent on that. But they tried to corner the onion market, and here's how they did it: um, they started buying up 
onions. <laughs> that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. what. That's exactly what I would do mm-hmm. in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, onions. And then did they go around saying things like, mm, "Onions are delicious"? Yeah, I, w- I want onions. Let's eat more. That happened later. So uh, onions were, um, you know, onions kind of started the year at about two dollars and fifty cents a uh, bushel. That's a, a good bag. deal. I guess onions are sold in bags, not bushels. Is that true? At the time. Uh, is it like a kind of a flour sack sized bag? Yeah, is that right. what I should a be sack, picturing? A sack of onions. Two dollars. That's a good two, deal. Two and a half dollars a bushel. Well, this is 1955. something dollars. Right. And they buy up onions and they buy up onion futures to the, to the point that they, at one point, control almost the entire supply of onions. They but, own... 30 million pounds of onions. They could turn off the onion faucet at any time, That's forcing right. Americans to eat even blander food than they were already eating in the 50s. That's right. You couldn't make onion rings. You couldn't make, I mean, half of the Chinese food I eat is, it seems like it's three quarters onions. You get you order like chicken with vegetables and it's like a bunch of half-cooked onions and some, some green onions. There's onions in a lot of stuff and I've become aware of this because my kids don't like onions. Onion powder goes in a lot of things. What are some things that onions are in? Uh... Soups. They're on every cheeseburger. Chicken pot pie, yeah. Burgers. Right. Sometimes sandwiches have them. It turns out onions are a major, major food. And it depends on whether you call them a food or a condiment. That that, that will come up later in the story. Oh, yeah, because on hot dogs, you actually would use them as a condiment. I right. See. Well, and you also, I mean, onions on a burger. But a I, I, think of them in re- I think of them as a recipe ingredient. I'm going to vote food here. Just letting you know in advance. This is a futures uh, market for what I'm going to call onions. But what Siegel and Kasuga did was then they went to onion growers who still had some onions on the vine. And onions don't grow on I'm vines. almost certain onions don't grow but on vines. On the vine is just a, it's, it's, a, it's a, art, a term of art. In the ground. It's like and boots on the ground. They said, listen, um, we're going to flood the market with onions. Literally. Crashing the price of onions. Unless you, onion growers, buy back these onions. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So you can, we're, we will maintain the artificially high price of onions, but you need to buy those onions back from us and then you can sell the onions on the open market and we'll keep the, we'll price keep the prices up. up. Okay. But um, we're, if you don't, if you don't do this, if you don't agree to consume these onions within our internal market, we're going to flood the market. Is this all being done out in the open? Like is everyone following this in the, in the Wall Street Journal or the Herald Tribune? People are, people certainly within the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange are The onion, con- are the onion community, all the news groups, uh, rec.arts.onion is all a buzz. That's right. Uh, but as they're doing this, and this is the part that is, uh, that's unscrupulous. I mean, it's all pretty unscrupulous thus far. They were storing onions and those onions were starting to decay. Yeah, this is a little different than cornering the market on tin or silver. So they shipped the onions off to something I didn't know existed, which is an onion rehabilitation center. <laughs> And they paid people. Wait, what they paid people at, at a at a at one remove to strip the the gummy outside of the onions off to get like that fresh new onion that's inside of a decaying. I onion. mean, famously, onions have layers, and you yeah. can do that, but they're going to get smaller. You're going to lose twenty percent of the net weight of your onion every time you try this little maneuver. Slightly smaller, uh, but then the onions 
were shipped back to Chicago from the uh, from the onion from the Betty Ford that's right, center of the onions onion rehabilitation but in the meantime Siegel and Kasuga had shorted the onion market which is to say that when they looked forward at the price of onions 6 months from now a lot of people within the commodities market were seeing this inflated price of onions they were seeing that onions were now a scarcity. They're buying onion futures like there's no tomorrow. That's right. So when when Kasuga comes and says, you know, I'm going to... Shorting is betting against the market. It's betting against the price. A lot of onion traders were like, oh, for sure we will um, we'll make this trade with you because we're expecting the price of onions to go up. But aren't they like, I'm dealing with this guy who has a lot of control over the... These two guys have a lot of control over the price of onions. Did, well, they, did they send intermediaries? Did they wear disguises? Yeah, a lot of this was... was, was if you're going to be this surreptitious in your, in your onion dealings, you're going to... Uh, you're also going to have sellers, All these you know, proxies. Shell sellers. companies. But then people that were monitoring the onion market saw all of these new onions being shipped to Chicago. Now, these onions were old onions that they already possessed, but they were these rehabilitated onions. And they, and market observers became aware of what were probably train loads of onions arriving in Chicago. And so the perception of surplus existed. and Which was not inaccurate. They didn't know about the rehabbing, but there were a ton of extra onions out there. Well, there were just the regular amount of onions. It's just that these two guys oh, bought them all. I see. They're counting them twice by thinking they're coming back to town. They're counting them twice, which caused the price of onions to fall dramatically. So by the end of this season, onions were selling for 10 cents a bag. But isn't this okay for Kasuga and whatever because they shorted the That's onions? right. Kasuga and Siegel made millions. Ah. But by this point in time, it had attracted the attention of everybody in the in the American commodities and and actually you know it, it was in the newspapers right that this was they had they had in fact created a real shortage of onions yeah I was wondering did this affect the consumer market like it did supermarkets out of onions housewives r running to the onion table and fighting over the last few remaining withered onions that's right all French onion soup was made out of beets for that season <laughs> French beet soup which is terrible. Funyuns. Uh, Do not put cheese on beets. Funyuns were just called f. <laughs> no, they, they were sadyuns. <laughs> um, and this all, um, a lot of onion farmers went bankrupt because they'd bought these onions back See, at inflated prices. See, it's like the prices. housing bubble. These things have victims. Mm -hmm. Which all of this attracted the attention of the USDA. It attracted government regulators. Government regulators. And um, a congressman by the name of no less than Gerald Ford really introduced the Onion Futures Act, which prohibited futures trading in onions. Okay, here's my question at this point. Like maybe President Ford is or the future President Ford is not the, the brightest uh, commissioner on the Warren Commission. O only as characterized by Chevy Chase. You think secretly Ford is actually... Quite a genius, like most Michigan football players. I mean, the problem, the problem with Jesuits is there are two kinds of Jesuits. And one of them, one kind of Jesuits is closeted homosexual intellectuals who take the priesthood because um, that's what happens to the third son in a Catholic family. And the other half of Jesuit priests are football players who couldn't find another job. Wait, Gerald Ford is uh, a Jesuit Catholic? No, but oh. this is my experience of Michigan football players. Oh, I see. Half some of, of them are geniuses. Some of them are geniuses. And some, well, no, some graduates of Michigan are geniuses, and they're all closeted homosexuals. Oh. And uh, then the football players become president of the United States. This is why Betty Ford opened her onion rehab clinic. She had, to, she had a lot of sexual frustration. My feeling about being the president is it requires you to be smarter than the average bear. And so even George W. Bush and Gerald Ford, these presidents that were kind of famously dull. A little cloddish. Um, still had still to be. At, at dinner, they'd, be, they'd they had, be quick and a delight. They had to be pretty smart to handle just the basic uh, duties of the president. Now, our current president. Yeah, do you still find Chilling, this to be true? Um, 
is maybe uh, making that a harder case. But, you know, I do feel like our current president has many capabilities, although not an intellectual. Well, so what I was going to ask is, you know, Gerald Ford's IQ aside, mm. why is he limiting this legislation to onions? What is there about what is there about their scheme that is onion specific? To my mind, nothing. Well, because the onion was most re- the 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 most recent, and and I think maybe for the first time, a commodity that was manipulated so unscrupulously and and so illogically. Like, who would think that onions would be the source of this financial catastrophe? But it seems like what you should outlaw is the behavior, not the behavior relative. Because what stops these guys from just doing it with broccoli the following year? Well, good point. Uh, but Gerald Ford introduces the Onion Futures Act, and right at the last minute, um, some representatives of the motion picture industry... <laughs> Uh, walk into Gerald Ford's office and say, we would also like it to include outlawing futures trading on movies, on movie sales. So wait, there was a sense that you could bet against a movie or for a movie while it was in production, which you still can do in Vegas. You can go and say, I think Avengers 3 is going to be a clunker. Yeah, there's like a, well, there's a fantasy football equivalent of this too, where people draft summer movies right. and they, and they perform, their portfolio performs according to the movie's box office. But although you can buy uh, bundled subprime mortgages, you cannot bet on the, on the stock market against Hollywood movies because the Onion Futures Act became the Onion Futures and Motion Pictures Act. Oh, Fampa. This was just this was just a last minute sort of. This happens all the time in politics, right? Where you walk in and say, "But we'd like to also include a clause that makes it illegal to be a cheerleader or whatever." Little last minute onion trading. So, uh, so today you could still you could bet on the studio, right? You could you could you could short a studio if you think a movie's going to fail. Well, but you do. It'll be illegal to, to create a product. You that do that just by buying stock right, in that's Sony, what I mean. or you know, and you could you could short it for sure. But it's still illegal for me to create some Spider-Man portfolio. Right, uh, because uh, you cannot you cannot buy or sell movie tickets as a commodity. I, I was never tempted to do that anyway. Not quite, to be quite honest. Um, so this uh, this outlawing of onion futures trading devastated the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and in nineteen. So this happened in nineteen fifty eight. Did it leave these guys holding the onion bag, or did it they did. do okay? It did. All they had left was eggs and turkeys and potatoes, and that did just it just didn't generate the money that onion bags did. Who knew that onions were the uh, were where the body the gold was? And in nineteen sixty one, they introduced a new commodity to trade. Pork bellies. Really? And they said, the belly of a pork, which is a pig. Got it. Um, is a commodity, right? It doesn't matter where the pig grows up. It doesn't matter where the pork is being sold. It is, I mean, now, of course, we would have, I don't know, even know if there is such a thing as a free-range pig, but, but pork bellies uh, at the time were seen as a kind of interchangeable commodity product. And so pork bellies became a, a a thing that revitalized the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And then in nineteen 19- was, was pork not being sold as a commodity in any form before pigs, live pigs, um, and pi- what's, pig what's carcasses. The well, the 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 pork belly is a thing that you could somewhat standardize, right? A pig and a ham can be um, can can be various, right? A pig can be big, a pig can be small. You can't just say like pig. Oh, well, pork belly is, is specifically the the belly meat. It's just not it's belly. not all the it's not all the meat on the pig. It's not the haunches or whatever. No, it's the it is the bacon basically. Right. And for it's, instance, pork belly is extremely popular in China. Uh, pork belly is a is a major commodity in Korea. It's popular with me. It's delicious. Korea consumes seventy thousand tons of pork belly in their cuisine and pl- prices of pork belly really fluctuate on on these markets because if you have a bad year if a lot of pigs decide that they're going to work out this season and get real firm then Korea, the price of korean samgyeopsal uh goes through the roof goes through the roof um in fact the change in consumption of pork and and the the variation of of uh, pork on the market but produced less and it became less and less of a commodity that was traded. And in fact, it was delisted in 2011. But this idea of introducing new commodities. So in 1966, 
concentrated orange juice was introduced as a commodity. It didn't matter where you grew your oranges. Um, orange juice concentrate. Because it's now been reduced to, to something. To a, a uh, kind of flavorless, weird uh, goop. goop. Cylinder, cylindrical goop. And pork bellies and, um, and concentrated orange juice, of course, were major plot points in the movie Trading Places. Uh, because the whole the whole climax of trading places was that that um, our heroes had invested, you know, they they got insider information about the orange juice crop, and they were able to go in and and manipulate the bad guys. Oh right, it's orange juice in that movie. It's the, orange juice. The, the fake Hunt Brothers. I can't remember what they're called in the movie. It's it's like Ralph Bellamy and yeah, the Bell- Bellamy Brothers. Something. I can't remember what they're called. So referencing the Hunt Brothers, I think maybe the most famous incident of trying to corner the market in modern times was when um, these two brothers, uh, Nelson Baker Hunt and William Herbert Hunt, in 1979, decided they were going to try and corner the silver market. They were oil uh, scions. Uh, Their father was an oil man down in Texas. And in the course of the the year 1979, and really just in the fall, uh, in September of 79, the price of silver was $11 an ounce. And they started to try and corner the market. And it was in all the newspapers, right? They were These guys are buying, trying to buy a ton of silver. They were buying silver right and left. And by, uh, by January of 1980, they had increased the price of silver to $50 an ounce. And I was 12 years old at the time. Did you own any silver? And I... Did you have a silver doorstop? I became a real silver bug. Um... Is that the name for a, a, a silver investor? Silverbug? Yeah, yeah Silverbug. Um, people were, uh, uh, we still see the effects today because a lot of family silver, um, silverware, but also a lot of collectible coins, um, a, a whole sort of slice of what would be a world of collectible silver. It all got melted down. People were, they Such realized. a good price. People were like. An incredible price. And this quarter had as a collectible of certain value, but just as raw silver, it was worth 10 times as much. So people were melting their old silver candelabra in order to kind of profit from this bubble. But the bubble burst, the price of silver uh, fell back to $11. And what the Hunt brothers had done is they had gone on margin. They were buying silver with money they didn't have. Other people's money. And when that all fell apart, um, they lost a fortune of course, they still were rich dudes and ended up only getting a slap on the wrist. But, they, but it's just like the Duke brothers at the end of, of Trading Places. They're, right. they Were they literally lying in a garbage uh, dumpster? Uh, no, they continued to live in mansions and own lots and lots of stuff. Isn't that always the way? Yeah, it really is. The bad side of this story is that commodities trading throughout the 70s was expanded to include things that previously had not been thought of as commodities, including currencies, which it makes sense that currencies would be traded against one another. Sure. The value of the American dollar goes up relative to the yen. Currency then, trading was not a thing before this? Um, it, it was, but not traded as a, I mean, uh, you know, currencies went up and down relative to one another, but there weren't markets that were trading currencies as a, as a, like futures, uh, ec- ec- an existential product, right? Or, or like futures, right? Yeah. It wasn't there wasn't a futures market in the same way, but then interest rates became a thing that you could you buy and sell futures against. Um, you could bet on the stock market indices rather than just on stocks. You could just bet on like how the market was doing, and then of course, famously, subprime mortgages. But it became um, it, the futures market and the 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 commodities market it was opened up to include sort of anything you could commodify. Uh, The way the subprime mortgage thing worked is no one mortgage is anything, but collected an entire portfolio of 10,000 mortgages or 100,000 mortgages becomes an instrument of, uh, it becomes a commodity instrument. And you can can buy and sell futures against whether or not they are, what the market is going to rate that. Unless it's bundled. Unless it's onions or movie tickets. Onions and movie tickets remain. The only two things. The only two commodities that you cannot trade on the commodities market. And that concludes the Onion Futures Act. 
Entry 867.NU1105, certificate number 25671, in the omnibus. Now, futurelings, we hope that derivatives markets do not exist in your time. Well, the idea that they actually keep prices stable is still debatable. Some would say that they do not, that they increase price volatility. Some would say that they uh, stabilize. That's how you know that uh, economics is just witch doctor science. Economists argue with one another because they are boring people and no one wants to listen to them. (laughs) They try to try. They try to do this at parties, <laughs> and it doesn't go over. One thing is certain that in the future it will not be called futures market anymore. It will be called, oh. the, it will be called the present Whoa, market. Wait a minute, because they will literally be in the future. Maybe people in the maybe futurelings will be living in the present all the time. They'll just be so in the moment. They'll just be like, dude, I don't care what the price of wheat is tomorrow. What if everyone in the future is in show business and they just talk all the time about being in the moment? Like they don't know the word spontaneous. They just you, say in the moment. You and I are in show business. Do we talk about being in the moment? I don't think we do, and I don't think we are. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we kind of are in the moment when we do this show. That's true. It's the only time of the week I'm in the moment. Where you're just like. <laughs> it's the only time I'm ever off script. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Be here now. Uh, but along with your present market, hopefully uh, social media does not exist. Uh, in our day, the plague of social media was everywhere. As a result, uh, John and I were at Omnibus Project on every social media platform available to our grubby little fingers. We were individually at Ken Jennings on Twitter and at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. We received uh, electronic mail communications, which I need to check, by the way. I haven't looked at the mail in a while. Oh, boy, I haven't either. Well, you were overseas for a long time. I've been gone. I've been out of the country. But I should have kept a hand in. Yeah. Uh, I always forget how to get there. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. John does not know the password. So uh, maybe uh, either address me or uh, call John and let him know what the password is. It's uh, bleep blorp. (laughs) It's Fnord. That's why he can't remember. (laughs) What? Uh, we uh, had a post office box for uh, conventional mail. If you don't want to send us mail of mass destruction, if you just want to send us conventional mail. <laughs> so I was at the United... Uh, this is a totally irrelevant sidebar, but I was at the United Nations last week with my kids touring the United Nations. Right. I like the old-timey architecture. Sure, it's I know fun. You do. And uh, building, That building is wide, but, uh, but narrow. We had a... It's very narrow. We had a, uh, our tour guide was from Uzbekistan, and she was kind of walking us through where the different uh, in- instruments and arms of the United Nations do. And there's this kid in the group that is not aware that it's not his own personal tour. And he keeps asking the dumbest questions. And she's talking about denuclear, you know, deproliferation of, of nuclear arms. And he keeps asking, but wait, so how do they actually work? Like, how does a nuclear bomb work? What? And he's getting increasingly animated. Like, he really needs to know. Like, this, it's this poor Uzbek woman's job to teach him how to make a nuclear bomb. Right. And he just can't get it. Like, so it kill, it, how does it kill so many people with fallout too? Like, what is in there that does that? And it's a very awkward situation for the group who just wants to shut this guy down. Did you not really intervene as, no the, uh, as, the, as the white dad? Isn't the white dad at that point supposed to go, <laughs> if he has a white dad there, <laughs> oh. it's his job. No, but shouldn't you grab the other, the other dad by the lapels and shake him and say, quiet your child? Uh, I'm not actually sure who he was there with. Maybe he just kind of wandered onto the tour. You know, my mother doesn't tolerate that type of thing. She'll go right up into a kid's face and be like, you need to be quiet from now on. We need your mom there and at every Q&A session ever. And in every grocery store and in every restaurant where there's an unruly kid. I want your mom, like, I want your mom to have a ringtone on my cell phone, which is just saying, that's not a question. (laughs) So at Q&As, I could just play. That's an anecdote. That's not a question. You know, as an 85-year-old woman... Uh, she can get away with murder and does. That's a lot of moral authority that mm-hmm. she has. Mm-hmm. Uh, why was I even telling the story about the boy who wanted to know how nukes were made? Oh, because oh, we have a we have a post office address. Uh, you can send us things. I just checked the mail. Uh, a woman from Portland sent us copies of her of her books. Her very uh, funny books. Apparently, uh, it's a collection of her zine Somnambulist, and she sent us several issues of her zine as oh, well. Nice. If you're, nice. if you're interested in, uh, it looks like this one is about the local grocery and department store, Fred Meyer. Uh, so I'm going to be checking that out. Also, somebody sent us these clocks that he or she 3D printed, which are a Mobius strip. Yes. Time is a flat circle, and you can see that on these. But I guess the idea is that after going to 12, it does not wrap around to 1, but it goes around to the back of the Mobius strip and starts counting from 13, 14, 15, 
all the way to 24. And I don't know what, you would have to hang the clock somewhere where you could see it from both sides. I feel I like the person should have sent um, a little bit of an instruction about how they wanted us to use this clock. We each get one, which is nice. Yeah, but we, we, we've we talked about them now a little bit and we're confused about exactly how it's meant to go. I think if you hang it somewhere where you can see both sides, you just have to spend the first 12 hours of the day on this side of your room. Right. And then at noon, you walk around to the other side of the room where you can see the back of the Mobius strip where the numbers 13 through 24 are, are posted. If you are going to send us a gift, please do not have that gift require that I do anything. If you ha- <laughs> If you send us a four-dimensional gift... <laughs> <laughs> Please, John does not want any non-Euclidean gifts. Just have the gift be a nice thing and not a thing that has... That like, makes you move to the other side yeah, of the I room. Don't, I don't want to have to be ever. like, oh, this gift obligates me to be over there now. But when you have thought of these artifacts, you may send them to us at the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived, but surely it will collapse partly in uh, response to some futures market that goes awry. Or that kid actually getting the bomb. Right. The kid might get the bomb. He might. The lady from Uzbekistan may explain it to him in great enough detail that he goes and finds some irritated gold and <laughs> creates a 3D bomb. 3D prints a bomb. Oh, a gold bomb. Gold <laughs> bomb medicated bomb. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, we hope and pray that the gold bomb never goes off. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Also, our recordings are solid gold. So, yeah, we're going to put them on a solid gold record. It'll be the last bit of the cube and leave them buried in the earth. If Providence allows, futurelings, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.